This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anthony Fennell here and welcome to Future Tense and to the first of our summer series of highlight programs. I want to start with a clarification. It's sort of one of those tomato-tomato things. GIF or GIF? It's spelled G-I-F, but people use both pronunciations in my experience. I've always said GIF, so I'm going to stay with that for the sake of consistency. But, you know, each to their own. Now, just in case you don't know what a GIF is, let's start with a potted definition. So it's a very short animation. It's a much smaller file than a movie file, so it's it's easily shareable, and it's usually a couple of seconds of animated content. It can often be looped to look seamless, so someone's sort of performing the same action over and over again. So a very, very, very small movie. And thank you, Shaney Brew from the National Library of Australia. So GIFs are those cute or annoying little micro videos people tend to post online. They're similar to emojis, as we'll hear, both in usage and appeal, And digital researchers like Tim Highfield from the Queensland University of Technology believe they're increasingly becoming an important and underestimated aspect of the way we communicate. The GIF sits somewhere between other visual, social, web-based communication like emoji and video and the very personal expressions of selfies and the very irreverent kind of engagement of memes. Like... It kind of operates with elements of all of those. So the GIF can be a stand-in for emotion like emoji or present a particular feeling, a particular idea, a particular type of content. It can be very personal, not in the same way as a selfie necessarily, which is generally of you. So although the GIF could be of you, the GIF could also be personal in the sense that it makes sense only to you and the recipient, like the particular way that you've intended it. It can be irreverent in the same way as memes. It can offer a response to a particular context for a particular topic that is very snarky or very sarcastic or very ironic. And then the GIF is also not quite the video, but it's also more than just a picture. So instead of having to share a clip, a video clip that might be larger, that might take longer to load, that might take longer to play, the GIF offers just the important stuff, just the bit that's really interesting or the bit that serves the communicative purpose that you've chosen for it. So it's offering elements of all of these other forms of visual communication while being its own kind of unique thing. And so it fits in to all of these other forms of popular everyday visual communication while standing apart. Well, that's a lot to live up to. And from here, we'll try to tease some of that out. But first, let's dispel the notion that the GIF is just frivolous nonsense. Gretchen McCulloch is a linguist and online language expert. If you look back at the history of writing, there hasn't always been the kind of complete divorce between the written word and the picture that we think of as normal for writing. If you look back at medieval monks, the early illuminated manuscripts with all of this handwritten, hand-copied manuscripts, they often drew these very ornate drawings around the first letter of a manuscript or around the titles or around all of in the margins of all the different types of things. And what happened was with the printing press, 
it became suddenly much easier, much cheaper, much more efficient to print letters than to print pictures. And so we stopped printing as many pictures. The same thing with the early internet, with early computer terminals, where you have kind of like the matrix, where it's really easy to make symbols, but it's hard to do pictures. And this is something that, since it's gotten easier to make pictures, people want to do them. But we were always doing pictures. If you think about taking notes by hand, you doodle little things in the margins. There's always been this kind of interplay between pictures and even between letters and the, and the linguistic side. And I think that's something that's it's more a return to the marriage of pictures and, and writing than it is this wholesale shift to pictures only, which I, I don't think we're going we're gonna to end up at only pictures. We're going to have kind of more of a balance between the two. GIFs aren't new. They've been around for three decades. But they seem to have found a new level of appeal in just the past few years. Even serious media organisations like ABC News are now using them in their communication. Richard Rabat is the California-based CEO of JiffyCat, a platform for uploading and hosting GIFs. According to Richard, a large part of the appeal of the GIF is its ability to be highly personal and detailed. So they do uh, portray much more information than an emoji because uh, when you look at an emoji, like a smiley emoji, they're like, you know, one and the same. And when you look at a GIF to say I'm smiling, then you have a range of emotions that can be captured in a GIF because you can pick your favorite celebrity that's smiling or you can pick uh, something that's like geographically interesting and with much more visual information than an emoji, which is, you know, purely like a circle with like a, you know, a, like a grin. So that has allowed GIFs to be much more expressive in terms of emotions than a, a, a simple emoji. And yet they are still short. They express more information, but it's still in a condensed format. It is in a very condensed format. It was a, a bit of an artifact of the format itself. The format is really well suited for short content, like, you know, a second or less. Sometimes it's a few more seconds. But really, it works very well for very short content. And it, it ends up being able to pack a strong idea in a few, you know, basically a few images. But we have to be a bit careful about that idea of personalization. Sure, some people make their own gifts from original material they've recorded on their phones, but the vast majority these days simply select from the millions available on platforms like Jiffy Cat. A lot of gifts feature celebrities, and according to Richard Rabat, that's far from a coincidence. In many cases, celebrities want to be part of every, everyday conversation because of the status, the, you, know, you, you want to be on everybody's mind. And in many cases, like, it's somebody that creates that facial expression, that finds a facial expression that's unique, that turns it into something really exciting and that carries the day. Like, over the past two years, we've had you know, in the US a president that has an amazing range of emotions when it comes to facial expressions. And you can see a lot of it you know, on Jiffy Cat now. In the same way that emoji have become largely ubiquitous over the last five to ten years, GIFs are on a similar trajectory. If you think about three to five years from now, every single person with a mobile phone, every single person who's messaging on a daily basis, they're going to be using GIFs. And the beauty of the GIF is that it's far more expressive than any other medium because you can tap into these global cultural moments where people can bond over them. 
And so, of course, we're going to be communicating with text five to ten years from now. I'm sure emoji will also be part of how we communicate. But what's amazing about GIFs is that they allow people to communicate far more precisely, far more accurately than other mediums that we have uh, at our fingertips to communicate online right now. Now, you'd expect David McIntosh to be a GIFT enthusiast because his company, Tenor, previously known as Rifsy, developed a GIF keyboard that's made it so much easier to send GIFs via mobile messaging. He's betting on the notion that the GIF phenomenon is only going to get bigger. So what's his reasoning? I think there's a misperception on the marketplace sometimes. People think that GIFs are popular simply because they're fun, when that's not actually the real value proposition for most people. What's exciting about GIFs for most people is that they can tap into shared cultural moments. They can bond over these moments. They can communicate better. You know, like anything else, people will use them creatively. Sometimes people will use them to allude to things that happened in the past. They'll allude to a shared moment. And, and so, you know, like any word in the English language, sometimes you, you want to be more specific. Sometimes you want to, you know, be a little bit vaguer. And that's the beauty of, of the gift, that you can be precise, but you can also zoom out and allude to something. And I think part of the reason gifts work so well is that our minds reason by analogy. If you think about the human mind, we're seeing patterns, shapes, faces, and everything. And if you think about the GIF, many of them have faces in them. And if you think about a, you know, even a, a two-year-old, they grow up learning by looking at their parents' faces. They're looking for approval. They're looking for disapproval. We learn from one or two years of age to look at other faces and read those faces. And so it's no surprise that as we start to grow up 10, 15 years later, looking at faces is a fundamentally faster way of understanding a message. And when we look at what types of gifts are successful on tenor? You know, it's not just that they're short. It's that they fundamentally communicate some sort of thought, feeling, or emotion fundamentally better. And if you look at the body of what people are searching for on, on tenor, it's a massive number of distinct search terms. So tenor gets more than 9 billion monthly searches. And if you look at what are the distinct things that people are searching for, what are the distinct search terms? Over the last year, people have searched for more than 4 billion distinct search terms. So there's a huge variety in terms of these personal languages that people are creating and looking for on Tenor. So people are what predominantly looking for gifts now that have an emotional connection, that, that help to express the emotion that they're feeling at a particular point in time. Exactly. 90% of our gift searches are tied to emotions or reactions or actions, things like excited, sassy, hug, eye roll shaking my head, hungry, and they tie into cultural moments as well. You know, we first saw inklings of this with emoji, but of course, GIFs are, are far more flexible. There's a limited fixed number of emoji based on the Unicode standard, but with GIFs, more and more moments in the culture happen every single day. And so this emotional graph that Tenor is building that maps the emotions that we want to express to the content that we express it with, that's growing in size every single day. David McIntosh from Tenor. Digital media researcher Tim Highfield also sees complexity in the cultural dimensions of the GIF. Many GIFs are multi-layered, he argues. The ability to read GIFs in different ways is one of the most powerful aspects of the GIF. It's the multiple meanings that can be taken from a text where a single GIF might mean one thing in response to a particular message. In a completely different setting, it can mean something else. So... A lot of reaction GIFs that are taken from TV shows or films 
but show heightened reactions, heightened gestures, very emotional responses. Like the same image can be used to convey sarcasm or irony or genuine emotion or provide a kind of flippant take on what's happening. And this is part of what makes the GIF so universal as well on the social web, that you have these texts that are both recognizable but can be read in many different ways. In an article that I wrote with my colleague Kate Miltner at the University of Southern California, we argue that the polysemy of GIFs is one of the key kind of communicative affordances of the format where because the GIF can work on multiple layers, it has all of these different meanings, it allows for communication both at the wider level, so it stands in for something that a wider audience can see, but it also speaks to a particular group of people. So if you are sharing a GIF amongst your friends, there may be an additional subtext to that that you are aware of. It's like an in-joke or a reference. That... Or, or like double entendre jokes exactly. in the past. Yes. So it means something to the people in the know. And because it's it might be shared publicly, other people can see it and think, oh, this is the meaning that is happening there. And that might be true, but there might also be this second level going on that is hiding in plain sight. And that explains why we see the number of GIFs explode online during election campaigns. In a sense, the GIF is the perfect vehicle for political dog whistling. Tim Highfield points to the last US election as a prime example. A smiling GIF of either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump meant little unless you knew exactly who was sharing it and with whom. That election campaign, says Dr Highfield, also saw the mass adoption of the GIF by mainstream news and media. News organisations were using the GIF format, again, to distill information. So the likes of Vox were creating GIFs during the live debates to illustrate things like how many times Hillary Clinton was being interrupted while she was speaking. And so they were providing like animated infographics that they could just post to social media as the debate was happening. And we also saw, again, key moments that were both quote-worthy. So when Hillary Clinton said, I came here prepared to be president, that became a gif that had the quote at the bottom and circulated widely. Um, and that circulated because of the political implications. But there's also gifs that become taken out of context that get to circulate because they are applicable to other contexts. So the Hillary shimmy, for instance, where in response to something that Trump was saying, Hillary has smiled to herself, wiggled her shoulders. That moment became something that could be taken completely out of context, distilled down to its single gesture and applied in very different situations. One of the drawbacks is that what we have for gifts is still created based on a certain cultural context. So it's based on the kinds of emotions and the kinds of characters that get put into our TV shows, that get put into our media. So uh, there was an interesting article uh, a few months ago about digital blackface and reaction gifts, and this idea that in a lot of cases, the gifts that people are choosing are African-American characters specifically expressing particular emotions very strongly and cautioning people who aren't African-American to say, what kind of person and what kind of persona are you are you putting on? Are you using other people to represent emotions that you have? Are you are you creating stereotypes by uh, using particular gifts? 
And maybe you want to think about uh, integrating kind of racially diverse reaction gifts or reaction gifts based on cartoon characters or reaction gifts based on your own ethnic background so that you're not inadvertently stereotyping another group of people by your choice of gift. And so I think that was a very thoughtful article about what kinds of stereotypes we're using to get across these kind of emotional cultural shorthands. Gretchen McCulloch there, and the article she's referring to is well worth the read. It's called We Need to Talk About Digital Blackface in Reaction Gifts, and it's written by Lauren Michelle Jackson. The easiest way to find it is by going to our website, where we posted a link. This is Future Tense, the podcast for those interested in cultural change, new ideas and the impact of technology. I'm Anthony Fennell, and today we have our eyes and ears on the GIF, those little micro video clips that are increasingly finding a role in our daily communication. Mm-hmm. All right. Phone call, sexy. Mm-hmm. All right. Phone call, Now, we're only sexy. interested today in the language dimensions of the GIF, but they've also found a niche for themselves in pornography. As pure entertainment, they're all over the platform Tumblr, or so I'm told. So we wouldn't want to give across the message that the GIF is more than it actually is. Internet linguist Gretchen McCulloch agrees that it's important not to get too carried away with the power or potential of the GIF. But she does believe that GIFs help solve a long-standing problem with digital communication. So one of the things that we're missing when it comes to internet-mediated communication is that you don't get these kind of back-channeling expressions that are so common when we speak. So we often say things like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, uh-huh, okay, alongside someone else talking so that they know we're still listening and they know we're still paying attention. And we have things like eye contact and even just physical presence. Like, I know if you're standing looking at me or if you're walking away, I can see that in your body. And that's not something that we have in a digital context. So we use other tools. Sometimes that's simply the like button, which can indicate that I've read something. And sometimes that's sending a GIF, particularly in a context where you're trying to indicate that someone is heard or something is is referenced, but you don't have a substantive new idea to bring to the context. You just want to indicate that you've seen it and you acknowledgement and you acknowledge the sentiment behind it or the words behind it. So a GIF can, can provide that acknowledgement of presence as well as a particular emotion. Are they, though, confined to certain types of emotion? I mean, could you ever imagine people using a GIF, say, for a genuine grief or genuine pain or genuine anger? I think you could do, it, uh, do that in certain contexts. So if someone posted something that was really sad, you could send them a GIF of, like, you know, a small, cute animal giving another small, cute animal a hug. And that would be saying, I'm trying to give you a hug right now, my friend. And I think that would be very genuine. I don't think that has to be uh, sarcastic or emotional use. I, I think this this use of a, of a gift to express kind of shock or surprise or I don't even know what's going on right now can also sometimes be genuine or be heartfelt. I mean, I definitely think that a lot of gifts are very funny, but it's or if you're even if you're sending someone a gift that says congratulations or I'm standing applauding, that's not a sarcastic applause. That's genuinely you really like something. So. Yeah, a lot of them are funny, but they don't have to be used in a funny sort of way. There are shared universalities, facial expressions, and gestures. It's a quick learning process to explain and grasp foreign signs. Well, we're really excited that 
gifts which are fun and entertaining could actually have a real benefit in learning sign language because often someone will see a sign and they'll hit repeat or rewind and have to go back to actually see the signing and a gift does that automatically where you could sit and watch a sign a hundred times until you feel like you understood the dynamics of it and so it was entertaining and as well as educational. Hilary Scull is a Los Angeles film and documentary producer, and she's developed several thousand gifts for the hearing impaired. They're part of a much broader video resource called Sign with Robert, and they're hosted on the popular search platform Giphy. I see them being used in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I've seen people attach them in emails, you know, signing off. People say thank you. I use them in our World Play newsletters. If, you know, there's a surprise, I'll have a gift that says surprise or thank you at the end emphatically or different things. So I'm, we're educating our friends and fans along with entertaining. This is not just a, a niche offering, is it? Because I understand that there are around 30 million deaf or hard at hearing people in the United States. That is correct. Around 30 million deaf or hard of hearing Americans and they're estimating somewhere around 200 to 300 million deaf and hard of hearing people all over the world. But keep in mind, sign language changes from country to country, just like spoken language. So Australia has their own sign language called Auslan, which looks completely different than American sign language. So when I'm in Australia, I no more understand Australian sign language than you do. Like it's a completely different language. Have you had much feedback from uh, people who are using the GIFs? People love them. And now our actor, Robert DeMeo, who's the actual educator in Sign with Robert, is being recognized. People are like, oh, you're the guy on the GIF thing. And so that's been fantastic. And it's bringing more recognition. And people think it's fun. And it's nice to finally see something in their language, where if you if you realize we live in a hearing world and all day long it's just mouths flapping, so it's actually nice to say like, oh, here's something in my language for me. So that's that's been a real nice benefit. And obviously they're designed to help people with hearing difficulties, but what's in it for somebody who doesn't have hearing difficulties to use this type of GIF? Oh, anyone can use these. It's not only fun, but it's educational, where People can learn a new sign and maybe if they meet a deaf person, they can use the sign for, oh, that's funny, or avocado, or, you know, um, it's just something fun to be able to connect to other people where a lot of times many hearing people feel like they can't connect to somebody who's deaf because they feel like they don't know any sign language. So this is nice to show you, yes, you can learn a few signs and be a little more deaf friendly and accessible. You know, there's a very large population of people who are deaf, hard of hearing, going through hearing loss, what have you, but it's less than 1% of all characters on film, television, commercials, and stage are shown as um, either people with disabilities or someone who is deaf. So it is a way to remind people that there are these people in the world and they exist and there's uh, great pride in the culture and a language that's celebrated and just it gives a little more exposure and having it out in the world. Now, you chose 2,000 signs, as you say. How did you go about uh, selecting those? 
Sign with Robert has 15 hours of material, and it's not just vocabulary, but we also have lessons about deaf culture. We have an international sign language episode where you actually learn some signs from other countries and learn how that came about, deaf history, et cetera, et cetera. So I went through all the episodes to choose signs that I thought might be the most educational and user-friendly friends and family signs, signs for different weather conditions I thought would be fun, emergency signs I thought would be great for uh, medical workers, hospitals, you know, that people can use and people can use them for fun as well if people are going, it's an emergency, you know, so that's something they can put in their social media. And um, facial expressions, you know, angry, sad, depressed, happy, joyful, etc. So things that I thought that I would like to have, you know, if I was attaching a GIF to an email or social media, or I thought other people might think that they're fun, educational, or useful. Hilary Scull in Los Angeles. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, most people don't make their own GIFs. But those who do tend to be passionate about it. Shami Brew helped us out earlier with a concise definition for the GIF. She works for Trove, the National Library of Australia's free online database search engine. And she's involved in an annual competition called GIF It Up, which is anything but lowbrow. So Give It Up started in 2014, the first year it was run. It was run by the Digital Public Library of America and Digital NZ over in New Zealand. So they're two online collections of material very similar to Trove at the National Library. The main aim of Give It Up was to raise awareness of openly licensed content that was available in digital library collections. And one way that they raised awareness was by saying, look, these are the sorts of things that you can do with openly licensed content. One of the things you can do, not just copy it, uh, reuse it, you can make your own artwork based on these collection items. So it's a fun competition, but there's also a serious intent there underneath. Yes. So we chose gifts because they're fun and that they're easy to make and they have wide appeal. But the the main aim of the contest is not just to get people making gifts, but to get people to understand a little bit more about where you can get content to make gifts, that they do exist in these digital library collections and what they are and what they're about. And so your organisation, the National Library of Australia, and the other institutions involved in this competition, you, you really just open up a section of your your heritage collection, don't you, for people to muck about with and to experiment with? Yes, and we use this time to do things like make lists of all of the items that you can take and reuse and have these. They're either out of copyright or they have a licence attached to them, so a Creative Commons licence that says uh, you have a share-alike condition and that means you can distribute, you can remix or you can build upon the work. So we just promote that section of our collection, although it's always there. It's always free to to be used. And how sophisticated are some of the gifts that people come up with? They range. It gets very sophisticated. So we had entries where people were making what were essentially short films with a, a complete narrative from a series of images, which we don't expect. I mean, it can be as a sort of lo-fi as putting animated googly eyes on an image, but yeah, all the way up to you know, little complex pieces of storytelling. From looking at some of the, the previous entries in other years, there is quite clearly a, a sort of Monty Python-esque quality to a lot of them, isn't there? Which probably reflects, I guess, the, the fact that these are, these are heritage collections that the artworks are being drawn from. 
A lot of images that are out of copyright, they're pre-1954 images. So quite a lot of them might be black and white or sepia images or artworks. And so animating them often gives it a bit of a silly feel, a little, yeah, I've heard the, the Monty Python-esque uh, reference quite a few times. Just in case you're interested in something completely different, Shaney Brew from Trove at the National Library of Australia. We also heard today from Jiffy Cat Richard Rabat, internet linguist Gretchen McCulloch, David McIntosh from the platform Tenor, film and gif maker Hilary Scarl, and finally Dr Tim Highfield from the Queensland University of Technology. If you want to suggest a program topic or send us a comment, please do via the Future Tense website. When you get there, it's pretty self-explanatory. Or by tweeting me directly, my handle is at Anthony J. Fennell. Karen Savanovitz was the co-producer for this program. The sound engineer was Dave White. I'm Anthony Fennell, and you've been listening to Future Tense. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.